Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very much for joining me today because I am really excited to share this interview with you. So I just finished talking with Charlotte Eubanks, John Abel, and Tina Chun about the latest issue of a super exciting new journal called Verge Studies in Global Asias. This is a journal that co- that comes out with the University of Minnesota Press, and we talked about what, as of right now when I'm speaking, is the latest issue, although another one um, is probably going to come out by the time you hear this, and that is Volume 1, Issue 2. This is a special issue devoted to collecting Asias, and it came out as their fall 2015 issue. Um, Now, there's lots of reasons why you're hearing me probably especially animated about this and really excited about this. Um, Not only is the particular issue we're talking about just really fascinating in terms of Um, its contributions to its just kind of spirited way of opening up ways of thinking with and thinking about collecting and collections and what it is to collect um, in terms of global Asias. And so this is an issue um, that's absolutely uh, just fascinating to teach with and to read if you're interested in anything collection related. Um, And you'll hear about some of the particular um, components of that journal in a few moments. But it's also exciting because the kind of work that this journal is doing more generally, and this is instantiated in the journal as one example of the overall work that it's doing, is really, really important and pathbreaking in charting new territory in terms of opening up um, what uh, academic products, scholarly products can look like. Um, So there's a a very exciting experimental spirit um, that shapes what the particular um, kinds of features in the journal look like. You'll hear us talking in particular about a special um, section of the journal, and this is true in each issue, called Convergence, in which um, there are a number of kinds of components that are curated that take forms that are not typical forms 
for an academic journal. Um, those include, uh, and you'll hear us talking about it, but they include interviews, they include kind of portfolios in which the author kind of takes us through really fascinating visual studies materials. They include all kinds of things, attentiveness to digital projects. So um, this is, I think, really a model of what academic journals now and in the future can and should look like. Okay, so there's a lot um, to get to, so I'll let you get to it. I really, really hope you have a chance to get your hands on um, an issue of the journal because, like I said, it, it really is um, quite inspiring in terms of not just offering um, really inspiring work to think with, but also helping us imagine um, what possible futures for work in Asian studies and Asian American studies and beyond might look like. So thanks as ever for listening. Thanks for your support of the channel, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Charlotte Eubanks, Jonathan Abel, and Tina Chun about the new issue of their really fabulous journal, Verge, Studies in Global Asias. Now, this issue is called Collecting Asias, and I'm really, really excited to talk with you all about it today. So welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Charlotte, John, and Tina, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. So let's start, as is kind of traditional for the channel, um, and get introduced a little bit and talk a little bit about um, what brings you all to the field. So what are you each typically working on when you're not working on Verge? And kind of what brought you to Asian Studies as a field? And maybe, John, we can start with you. Oh, uh, I'm a, a comparative literature uh, professor who works on uh, Japanese literature primarily. <laughs> and um, my uh, first book was on the archives of censorship in uh, transwar Japan. And so the, the idea of uh, archives and collection is something that uh, has, has been uh, part of my scholarship. I translated a book uh, called Otaku, Japan's Database Animals. And this idea of a kind of database or uh, collection or archive is something I I'm, I'm, uh, have been uh, very interested in. And I'm, I'm currently working on some projects that are dealing with uh, archive in a more digital uh, sense. Awesome. And we had actually a chance to talk about um, one of your previous publications, um, your book for the channel, and that was really fun. So thank you also retrospectively for making time for that. Tina, what are you typically working on when you're not working on Verge? So I am an Asian Americanist, and I work on contemporary Asian American literature and culture. Uh, my first book, Double Agency, Acts and Impersonation, uh, focused on impersonation as a kind of conceptual paradigm for thinking about the performance of Asian American identity. Um, now I'm interested, I've been becoming more interested in speculative fiction and thinking about the overlaps and um, divergences between speculative fiction as a kind of generic category and ethnic American literature as a kind of category. Very cool. And Charlotte, what are you typically working on when you're not working on Verge? <laughs> uh, when I'm not being the, the DGS for my department, which seems less and less at certain times, uh, I kind of go back and forth between uh, two different sorts of projects. Um, one has to do with uh, transnational Buddhist literary culture, particularly throughout the medieval period. Um, and that was um, my first book, which was on miracles of book and body, Buddhist textual culture in medieval Japan, which was also featured on the new books in East Asian studies uh, thing from Luke Thompson, which was kind of our new books in Buddhist studies. So thank you. Um, 
And then um, uh, the second kind of thing that I work on is um, 20th century visual culture, art and activism kind of stuff. So I'm working on a project right now that has to sort of a micro history of 20th century transcolonial Japan told from the, uh, through the life story of the, uh, artist, activist, and memoirist uh, Akamatsu Toshiko, who's better known by her married name, Marikitoshi. But when that's done, I'm going back to the medieval period for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And we'll actually um, hopefully have a chance to talk a little bit about that latter work, because a piece of that shows up in the journal, um, as you that we're talking about. Great. Um, so thank you to all of you. Now, Verge is a relatively new journal. Um, it's an exciting new journal, and you're all part of the editorial collective of that journal. Um, now, so for listeners um, who haven't had a chance to take a look at the journal um, and or to take a look at the particular issue, um, issue uh, volume 1.2 that came out in 2015, Collecting Asias, that we're focusing on today, John and Charlotte are co-editors of that particular journal issue, um, and Tina is the editor of the journal as a whole, and they're all part of the editorial collective. So let's talk about the journal itself, um, kind of generally speaking, before we focus in on the particular issue. Now, how did the inspiration for the journal come about? Um, what was the perceived um, need for the journal, and what kinds of major contributions are you hoping that it's going to make? And Tina, perhaps we can start with you. Okay, great. Um, that's a really good question. As you know, building a, a big project like a journal takes a long time. And so when you ask this really simple question, it's actually kind of hard to find a single answer to that. Um, but I think there are multiple answers, I guess, uh, to that question. So I think one of the first answers would be that as you heard from our introductions. I'm an Asian Americanist, and as an Asian Americanist, I was trained under more of an ethnic studies, American studies rubric. Um, but when I came to Penn State, I discovered Penn State did not have an American studies program or department. And um, although my majority appointment is in the English department, the dean asked me to put 25% of my line in Asian studies. So after clarifying with her that she understood I was not an Asianist, I said, okay, that would be fine. Um, and, but that, that sort of put me into conversation with my Asian studies colleagues in a way that I'd never had the institutional opportunity to do something like that before. And I think from those interactions and conversations, it became clear that the kind of historical antagonisms between Asian studies and Asian American studies were both, um, they were a site for us to maybe do more work at. And so that was one, one I think, impetus for creating uh, a journal that would bring into um, conversation, but not necessarily into alignment, these two different fields. Um, I think a second answer to that question comes from the subtitle of our journal, uh, Studies in Global Asias. Um, when I got here to Penn State, we actually had just created a program in Asian studies, and it's now a department of Asian studies. But in trying to create this interdisciplinary um, institutional structure, we had to find rubrics that would enable all of our different colleagues to have conversations with each other. And that led to the Global Asias kind of um, concept. Uh, an approach. And so, again, the journal is very interested in sort of breaking down the 
the silos that separate work. Those silos could be disciplinary. They could be historical. um, They could be methodological. And so this Global Asia's rubric um, is something that the journal really pushes as well as multidisciplinarity. So we're not trying to create a kind of new master uh, vocabulary for how to talk about Asia or Global Asia's. We're trying to juxtapose and curate and create um, space for people who are already talking about these issues to talk to each other in ways that they haven't had a chance to do before. And I think at least from my perspective as a reader of the journal, one of the things that um, comes out of that commitment to interdisciplinarity and connection making is that um, for listeners, again, who haven't had a chance to read the journal, um, the issues are not only really great to read and to work through and get inspired by, but they're also going to be really, really great to teach with. Um, So this was, I can imagine, um, assigning both of the first two issues that I've seen, at least, of the journals in graduate seminars and perhaps upper-level undergraduate courses as well. So there's a lot of potential, um, really germinal, um, you know, some great stuff coming out of um, how these can be used as well as um, how they can be uh, read and enjoyed. So, John and Charlotte, is there anything that you want to add in terms of um, your interest in becoming part of the journal um, and your your particular um, vision for where you hope the project um, might go that, you know, maybe brought you into an interest in getting involved? Um, John, did you want to speak to that at all? Sure. Uh, well, one thing just to sort of further elaborate, I think, on uh, Tina's comment uh, that it is kind of interesting to me about the Global Asia's concept as we've sort of been talking about it uh, in and amongst uh, the collective here is um, to consider it sort of not in a kind of homogenizing way of globalization, but rather, uh, and this is has to do with the, our insistence on the kind of plural uh, Global Asia's, that there isn't a Global Asia, but a Global <laughs> Asia's. Um, so, so that's kind of interesting to me to sort of think about what does it mean to think about all, all of these different ways in which uh, um, Asia kind of bleeds out into other areas. Um, and uh, the the other part, uh, which is, a, is a more formal, is something that we'll get to when we uh, talk about um, uh, the convergence section of the journal. But I think overall, you know, being um, at, at this kind of uh, brainstorming stage of, of a new journal uh, has uh, been a, a kind of wonderful um mind-opening experiment in terms of what's possible for academic publication. Um, and what we can get into the, some of the specifics in the way that the journal does that, but that's really what's exciting to me about um, uh, some of the thinking that we've been doing, sort of how the journal can uh, be different from other journals in a, in a kind of uh, formal way. And Charlotte, was there anything that you wanted to add about your particular interest in becoming part of this? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I think in part of it, it, it has to do with the people who are involved. Um, I mean, my colleagues here are just uh, awesome people who help me think better and, and really expand the range of, of what I feel empowered to to consider. And so that's certainly part of it. And, and it's maybe the part that's hardest to get a, a grasp on because it's just those interpersonal uh, sorts of connections. More kind of institutionally, I think, Part of my motivation for um, being part of the journal has to do with my own disciplinary training in comparative literature, and particularly as someone who was an Asianist in uh, comparative literature settings, that 
you know, sort of across the discipline. It's becoming less so, but but tends to be more kind of globally north and globally west. And so through the course of my own graduate training, constantly having to make um, sort of one over type of arguments where I, where I was always needing to address people who were not going to be familiar with the kinds of literatures that, that I was working on. And contrary to being a kind of, you know, frustrating experience at times, that was also like a excellent training in in sort of forcing me to conceptualize my arguments and their relevance for people who weren't specialists in my field. And I came to really value that not only as someone who works primarily on Asian materials in a complete discipline, but then also more broadly, someone who has that kind of temporal once over type of thing in that most of my training is primarily as a medievalist and um, you know, the, the realities of the job market and things um, mean that I'm mostly speaking to folks who work on 18th, 19th, 20, 21st century types of stuff. And so I'm kind of I'm having to, to juggle that, that temporal, um, not really discord, but harmony, I suppose, in some ways. And I find that the journal replicates and challenges me to do a similar kind of once-over thing in that um, most of us associated with, with the collective are coming from the humanities but we're really interested in and excited about the kind of one-over conversations we can have with people in the qualitative social sciences. And so challenging us and them to, mm-hmm. to think across those, those kind of divides has been a real source of energy for me and I think for the journal. And I, I think that energy really comes out of the journal. I mean, at least, again, for me as a reader, um, this makes me want to have more of those conversations, you know? So it's, <laughs> So let's actually um, maybe move to the particular issue itself. And again, this is volume one, issue two. Um, this was fall 2015, the special issue on collecting Asia's. So let's talk perhaps about what brought you, um, uh, John and Charlotte, to this particular focus and to this issue. You talked early on in the introduction to this issue about a two-day symposium at Penn State in 2013 that seemed like it was kind of the, um, uh, maybe the impetus for at least some of what happened in the journal. So um, would you like to talk about that? Um, Perhaps, John, um, would you like to start? Uh, sure. I, I have the uh, website from, from that uh, com- uh, workshop open. And um, maybe one way of doing it is just to read you the thing that uh, Charlotte and I wrote for the uh, um, the splash page there, which is a couple of sentences. This two-day symposium examines the limits, contours, and contents of what has been categorized as Asia or Asian. The symposium includes scholars... Uh, from various disciplines and eras uh, broadly addressing this topic. All papers presented at the symposium will be considered for possible publication in a special issue. So at that time, we were just um, thinking, I think, very uh, kind of broadly, um, both about what um, collecting might mean for um, the idea of Asia, uh, but also what constitutes a, uh, some of the descriptor Asian uh, for, uh, from things to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll say also for me, part of the inspiration for maybe the the original two day symposium and also the idea behind the panel had to do with kind of um, some of the, I guess, points of, of 
productive tension between shifting from a, a medieval project to a contemporary project in my own work. So looking from the point of view of, of doing a lot of archival and museum work for my second book, called attention to some of the ways in which there were these pre-modern genres for collection. So I was doing, at, at the time that we did the symposium, I've been doing a lot of thinking about classical poetry anthologies mm-hmm. in South Asia, in uh, East and Northeast Asia, and the kind of cultural work that they did, both in terms of, of literary work, you know, compilations of poems, but also kind of the uh, geographical, sociological, and, and political project of, of kind of almost a poetic census taking, um, and the way that that not only generated claims to land and land ownership, but also kicked up into generation of senses of identity. And as I was thinking about those types of things, having conversations with John about his work on uh, censorship and archives of censorship in the 20th century in the American, North America and in Japan. And also having conversations with Tina about rubrics of Asian Americanness and genres of, uh, according to that um, kind of all started to gel, I think for me and then for John and I also uh, around the symposium and kind of creating a synergy between the symposium and the, and the journal, which was kind of nascent and, at that point. And one of the things I think that came out of the, uh, the uh, workshop for, uh, for me was uh, more of an attention on uh, not just the curators themselves, but what it might mean to curate a collection of people, mm-hmm. uh, which came up in a number of the papers that day. And it was something that sort of stuck with me and, in fact, is, is present in the, in the uh, volume that we're talking about in a, uh, at least uh, two or three of the essays, this idea that, um, you know, we, we're often doing that when, uh, in writing scholarship. It's, it's not just bringing, you know, documents together, but also people together mm-hmm. and making collectives and I, I would like to add, too, that I think that curation is a really important word for us here at the journal, <clears throat> that we really see curation as a serious kind of research practice. And so given the journal's mission of bringing into relation but not into alignment um, the fields of Asian studies and Asian American studies, we see a lot of like what we do in the journal as curating people, curating work, juxtaposing different kinds of um, questions so that people can be part of these uh, discussions that that if they were only approaching them from, I guess, a specific disciplinary vantage point wouldn't even be possible. Right. Mm-hmm. And is there anything um, kind of looking at the transformation from this sort of physical embodied collection of people at the symposium to this curation of people that took a printed form in the volume? Is there anything that came out of the discussions at the symposium, um, any inspirations from the symposium, or perhaps the discussions that ensued thereafter that motivated the particular approach to curation that we see in this issue of the journal? Um, what got included? Um, what, how the particular sequencing of the essays or the parts actually show up? Um, Charlotte, did you want to speak to that at all? Sure. I think there are a couple of major things uh, for me about the transition from the symposium and the people being in the same room to the, the special issue with the, the papers and the convergence uh, issue uh, items being, being together. Um, one of those has to do with the fact that at the symposium, because 
you know, we, we had, we did targeted invitations to the symposium and we were in addition to, to a larger call for papers. And we really were trying to get together people who were working in social sciences and humanities and with a lot of temporal depth. And for some reason, uh, you know, a whole array of them actually, but, but, but a lot of the um, people at the symposium who were kind of dealing with more classical, pre-modern, uh, medieval kinds of materials ended up not submitting. And I think it was because they were struggling in a certain sense with the multiple one-overs that they were being <laughs> asked to, to do. Um, and so that's something that, you know, as the journal goes forward as, as an associate editor, I really want to kind of carefully attend to is trying to make those types of conversations more possible um, and to, to think very carefully about what's involved in doing that, the stakes in doing that, and, and actually what we're challenging people to, to conceptualize. Um, the second thing that kind of came out of the conference for me was, in fact, we were still working through what some of the convergences features were going to be. And actually from the energy of the um, symposium, we ended up creating or uh, it's kind of crystallizing the interface uh, convergence feature because it seemed to be something that people at the symposium were very interested in and that, the, that there wasn't a publication rubric or outlet already out there that was answering the kind of demand for, um, I guess, airtime that, that people were voicing. Maybe you know, as we get into the convergences, Tina can maybe talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I would say that the third thing that came out maybe from our conversation at the symposium that directly impacted um, the journal structure is that it became very clear to us that um, we needed to focus on special issues. So we have a three to one special issue, open issue ratio for the journal. And because of the real capaciousness of our project, um, it's very useful for us to have a focalizing lens produced by the special issue topic or thematic, as opposed to just having it be global Asia's all the time. (laughs) (laughs) That makes a lot of sense, actually. John, is there anything that you wanted to add um, to this conversation about the transition from kind of embodied in-person symposium to the print collection? Well, just one thing, I think we mentioned it in our introduction, too. Um, It's, you know, I think Charlotte and I were both very much struck by the way in which our own research interests, identities as, you know, scholars of of Japanese literature, um, in a a sense, impacted what we ended up with. Uh, And so there are, you know, a number of uh, Japan scholars in the volume. Um, there are a number of liter- literature papers in the in the volume, uh, something that we weren't necessarily looking for, but it found us. And so there's a way in which um, the uh, you know, th- th- despite you know best intentions to to be more capacious, right? Um, that the, the, the curator kind of ends up reproducing aspects of themselves, um, and this was something that we sort of joked about as we were, you know, uh, as, as the final table of contents was coming into into shape. Um, but it's it's you know something I think again that uh, is always an issue with with um, collecting. Mm-hmm. 
Now, several of us um, already or several of you have mentioned this term convergence. Um, so let's actually get into this so that listeners um, have a sense of what's um, what that means, what that means for the journal and um, perhaps why um, that's so exciting. And I think we're all kind of excited about that section. Now, one of the things um, about the journal, again, that's that really excitingly pushes on what an academic journal can be is that the at least in the two issues um, that I've seen, the components of the collection that's manifest in the journal um, take two different forms. There's a section called um, essays, which include um, sort of academic essays, and we can talk about those a little bit later on, um, perhaps depending on the time we have. But there's also this section called convergence. Um, now, there's components um, that have already been brought up. Um, the word interface came up. There are other kinds of components um, uh, that make up uh, very different ways of of uh, manifesting what storytelling and scholarship can be shaped like that come out of this convergence section. So to kind of lay the ground the groundwork and the foundation before we get into the specifics, Tina, um, can you talk a little bit about your vision for this convergence section? Um, for you, what's most important about it? Um, how did this come about? And what do you think is perhaps uh, most exciting about uh, where what the convergence section is trying to do, what it is doing, and where it might go? Um, yes, of course. Uh, convergence. So every issue of the journal begins with this convergence section. And in the convergence section, we have a series of six rotating rubrics. And in each issue, we will publish four of those rubrics. Those rubrics um, are just quickly um, A and Q, which is a kind of responsive dialogue, which is either an interview or roundtable format that's inspired by a set of questions. Uh, we have Codex, which is a collaborative discussion and an assessment structure, which we have focused on with books, although I would hope to open that up to maybe um, other kinds of things as well. We have translation, which is a feature that will, um, that's exactly like what it sounds like, where we'll be able to provide primary and secondary sources uh, that are not yet available in English, and we'll be able to translate those. Um, we have a feature called Field Trip, which is um, a feature that um, highlights reports from various subfields and disciplines and is usually inspired by a specific kind of occasion. Uh, we have Portfolio, which uh, provide commentaries on visual images. And then we have Interface, which features text and hopefully eventually online material that explore the resources of the print digital world. So um, Convergence is so dear to me, and I'm, I'm so excited to hear that you find it exciting because um, we really see Convergence as the heart of the journal. Um, <laughs> convergence is designed to um, encourage collaboration <laughs> and conversation. It, all of the formats are non-traditional, um, and we think that this is important for a number of different reasons. Um, I think, number one, it allows us um, the opportunity to get more people involved in this conversation. As you know, the um, academic essay, uh, vaunted as it is, tends to be somewhat unwieldy sometimes. It takes a long time to get to fruition. With convergence uh, features, we're a lot more nimble, we're a lot more flexible, and we can ask sort of provocative questions and get people to give us sort of short 
responses that enable us then to sort of open up a different conversational um, opportunities and sites. So for that reason, we think convergence is really exciting. Second, secondly, you mentioned the pedagogical potential um, of the journal. And so, you know, what we're trying to do in Verge is to uh, develop conversations that aren't already happening. And it seemed to us that in order to do that, we had to create different structures to make those conversations possible. Given the ways in which we are trained as academics, which is to specialize, 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 mm-hmm. a project like this really pushes against that training. Um, and it's hard uh, in working with people individually and also uh, people who want to edit special issues. We're constantly encouraging them to move outside their comfort zones, to talk to the people that they don't know, to think about, um, you know, not being experts. Uh, And I think that all sounds great theoretically, but it's actually really hard in practice and it requires a real commitment um, and real dedication. And so convergence is another place for us to make that more possible. You know, it's hard to tell someone, yes, give us a 30 page essay on something that you're not an expert on, but it's a lot easier to say, Hey, we're going to have this really interesting conversation about a set of questions. And we're just interested in sort of your take on it in relationship to all of these other smart, interesting people that you haven't had a chance to talk to yet. That's right. I love that. Um, John, did you want to speak to um, this larger issue of the kind of work that you imagine the Convergence section um, is going to do kind of in general? Sure. I I mean, mostly I I think Tina uh, covered it, but my, you know, my my sense is um, this is is a place for collaboration, but also a place uh, for people to try something new. Uh, uh, One of the, uh, for one of our colleagues uh, did the A and Q section um, for this time. uh, And I remember having conversations with her about uh, doing a, an interview uh, for the first time. Um, You know, this is a a well-published scholar, but you know, we don't necessarily do interviews and write them up. You do them all the time, obviously. (laughs) Uh, But even even you don't, don't write them so often. I don't think. So there's a, there's a, uh, a kind of uh, forcing people into uh, to, to think about their work in different ways, uh, which are productive, but also uh, learning new forms and genres in which uh, in which to write. Right. And I think it's really important um, to do this in the context of a journal, because in so many contexts, I mean, even the kind of interview work that I do in terms of the traditional academic metrics um, that, you know, something that looks like an interview or something that looks like a co-authored publication, certainly in the humanities, um, a lot of colleagues who need to be measuring and adding up and, you know, do you get merit for this or not, still don't know what to do, like with these formats, you know, like what is, what does this count as, you know, how do I understand the interview as a kind of craft or genre or product or thing that you've made? Um, and so the more we can kind of get this, uh, these forms out there um, and encourage more people to to make them and to then to thus kind of understand them I think the more we can start to really um, change what the landscape of academic making um, can look like right Charlotte did you want to speak to um, kind of your vision of the overall importance of the convergence section at all is there anything you'd like to add well I mean I think mostly John and Tina have have gotten it exactly I mean it seems like a 
the ideal thing about it for me is is a couple of things. One is that it, it provides a place to give value to and prominence to this kind of new work that we're asking people to do and, and the kind of things where we ask people to take risks. And, you know, if you're going to ask people to take risks and try something new or try something different, you know, we wanted to make sure that, that there was a place that, that, that accorded value to that. Like it shows up as pages in a journal, <laughs> a peer review journal. These are peer reviewed. I mean, these conversion yes. features are peer reviewed. Yes. Yeah. So they are, they're peer reviewed intellectual explorations um, that take, you know, in some ways, I think as much energy and in some ways, maybe more creativity um, than, you know, what might go into a, a more standard form of essay. Um, and so that to me is, I think, the, the really important thing of it. In some ways, it's a, a lower stakes type of thing because it is experimental. You've carved, you know, we've, or we've tried to carve out a little bit of space to say, mm-hmm. try it, <laughs> see what comes up um, type of thing. So it's a, to me, it's a good combination of, of low stakes, but high profile mm-hmm. that we hope will, will translate into something that, reads as valuable. I also love the way in which it asks us always to keep thinking outside the box, I guess, right? I mean, I think we're all of us so familiar with what the box of the academic essay looks like, and it's an important box. I mean, there's a lot of work that gets done there that's really, really critical. But the beauty of the convergence sections, uh, the convergence section and the features that we have there is that we're always like trying to think of ways to get at the central question, but in, through a non-traditional approach. And so, you know, just before we started this uh, interview, we were talking about this conference that John and Charlotte and our colleague, Reiko Tachibana, are co-organizing, um, AJLS. And so we were trying to think about how can we turn that something um, that happens at that event into a, a field trip feature and we're able to just sort of really brainstorm and open ourselves up to different sort of structural possibilities. So that's super exciting. One of the questions that for me immediately comes up, um, inspired by something that Charlotte just said, or a term Charlotte just used, peer review, right, Um, leads me to um, wanting to know your thoughts on another related question before we actually get into the specifics of some of the features in this convergence section. Now, those of us who are engaged in conversations about how to integrate and of evaluation of and how to value the kinds of objects that are coming out of uh, more experimental uh, approaches to genre and writing and production and making in, in academia, right? Be that digital uh, or be they digital products or other kinds of products get into conversations about, okay, how are these counted, right? How are these um, valued within the structures that we have, and often those conversations um, get steered toward peer review, right, as the kind of marker. So when you're practically speaking, um, and I'm just asking this selfishly because I'm just interested in, in these <laughs> mechanics, right? Practically speaking, for you, when you're looking for a peer reviewer of one of these um, features, portfolio or interface or A&Q or field trip or translation or codex, um, what constitutes a peer how are you thinking about that? Tina, did you want to speak to that a little bit? That's a really good question. And actually, um, you know, this is an issue that we've been thinking about a lot in that given the kind of 
multidisciplinary work that we're often encouraging, um, it, it often means that we have to ask multiple peers. So like peer review is a multiple, is a, is a sort of diverse process, right? It's not a single person who then is the other expert in this thing, but really, and so I think that that starts from the very beginning. We have a double review structure. So we have internal reviews, which are done by the collective members, and then we have external review process. And so in the internal review process, we have someone from our collective, sometimes more than one person from the collective, do a quick internal assessment to see if this is, you know, at the quality level is where we need it to be on a basic sort of general um, sense. And then we send it out. And, And when we're sending it out, I think what we try to do is we try and send it out to multiple people who are coming from different points of view or perspectives. And then together, um, and we'll sit down. And what we do at the journal is we always provide an editorial head note, which um, collates and manages that information. So as you know, from going through the peer review process, very often you get people who say completely different things and give completely different (laughs) advice. Um, And so rather than leaving authors to just sort of wallow in that mm-hmm. multiplicity. <laughs> um, we actually sit down and try and give them a path. We say, this is what we hear reviewer one saying, this is what we hear reviewer two saying. And from our perspective, from the journal's perspective, from a kind of multidisciplinary global Asia's perspective, um, this is what we would like to see. And I think the combination, the collective structure of that review process um, enables us to sort of be both I think coherent, but um, open to diversity. Great. And John or Charlotte, did you want? Is there anything you wanted to add to that um, thought about sort of peer review and, and, and the constitution of peers for um, forms and genres like this? Well, so one thing though that uh, that I, I can give a there was one specific. I guess I can't give give very specific, <laughs> but I can, I can cite one example from from our uh, collection where we were able to I think mitigate. Um, somebody who wasn't getting the, this kind of experimental structure review, um, because one of the criticisms uh, was about the experiment itself, right, and or the form itself, rather than really about the content. And uh, we, because we we're doing that kind of head note uh, structure, we as the collective were able to, um, you know, say the, you know a, re- a reviewer. Um, is criti- critiquing the form. That's not, you know, we're, we're okay with that as mm-hmm. a, as the journal. Um, but the, the uh, listen to them on the content, you know. So that kind of thing, I, I think, helps a little bit. And I, I guess uh, Tino could speak more to this, but I think there's also um, a, a sense that we're picking people who are uh, generally a little, uh, probably more likely to be receptive to the experimental. Um, uh, form generally uh, for the the convergences section. Um, But I'm I'm not sure about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, we're asking reviewers to be open just as we're asking authors to be open to, right? So like when we ask for reviews on convergence features, oftentimes people do not know. They're like, okay, I haven't had the um, opportunity yet (laughs) to review something like this. So we have to sort of explain to them what we see this feature doing, what we give them examples now that we have have an actual journal as opposed to an idea for a journal, we can give them um, examples from earlier issues to see what's possible. And over the course of time, I think people will see that while there is coherence um, 
within each of these rubrics, um, we have also designed them to really still enable experimentation, even within the confines or the parameters of the rubric. And that's something that we're really committed to. Great. It's been a lot of work, too, but, you know, I mean, it's sort of, say that again, Charlotte. It's been a lot <laughs> you know, but one of the, the, one of the rewarding things about it, actually, is the people who we ask to review when they say yes. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to this, say yes. But, you know, <laughs> when people say yes, it's often they're excited. And they're totally. like, I haven't actually been asked to do something like this before. Yeah. And I think it's fun, you know, yeah. and, and so they're kind of excited. And so in many ways, I, I think as we've gone on with this experiment now into multiple volumes, there's a way in which we're starting to collect sort of a, a critical mass of people who are fun and excited in doing this kind of multidisciplinary thinking and once overthinking. And that's exciting and energizing just as a scholar speaking Mm -hmm. totally selfishly there to kind Mm -hmm. of just know that there are other people out there, (laughs) you know? Absolutely. So what, let's actually get into some of the special features here. Now, one of the special features in the convergence section of this particular edition of the journal is portfolio. Um, Now, in the words of the journal, and this is just to echo um, something that Tina's already said, this is a feature that provides a space for the reproduction and analysis of rare, hard-to-find, or understudied artworks and artifacts of visual culture. And Charlotte, you actually have a piece here um, that is featured in this portfolio section. That's awesome. Now, this piece follows um, Akamatsu Toshiko, who you've already talked a little bit about in, in our kind of introduction, from selling caricatures in Tokyo through the end of a love affair, and she like goes to Palau, and it's amazing, right? She spends five months in Micronesia. She completes um, 186 of the Dessin of these um, uh, materials in an illustrated journal. She has a public public exhibition of her work. She wants to buy an island in Micronesia to live there. I mean, how can you not love this person, right? And then she transforms into Maruki Toshi, a prominent peace activist and anti-nuclear artist. It's a fascinating story. Um, So Charlotte, for you, can you talk a little bit about what brought you to this particular work? And is there anything in particular that you feel um, it's that you feel is perhaps most exciting about this particular um, case and this particular feature in the portfolio that you'd want listeners um, to know about? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, in some ways, I'm a little embarrassed because I feel selfish. <laughs> because um, as we were imagining the journal and we were imagining the portfolio feature, I was like, I want one, <laughs> um, and I'll do one early on so that we can kind of give a give a model of it. But one of the things I really liked about the feature itself is that it provided a way to do something that was between an academic essay and a kind of museum catalog description or catalog resume kind of thing, and a sort of um, filmography, you know, I can imagine for someone working on on, uh, film and and cinema and that kind of thing, Um, or a performance review or something like that. So it was kind of a a way to not mash up different genres, but to find an intermediate space between the type of, of museum catalog or filmography or performance review genre of writing and the academic essay genre of writing that was constellated around these, these sets of visual images. And I also was really psyched about it because it was a chance to think about some of the questions that 
are so central to ethnic studies, um, such as you know intersectionalities of race and gender and sexuality, and to use those questions which tend to come up more in in the field of Asian American studies to think through something that was kind of a, a quintessentially uh, 20th century Japanese experience um, that is a kind of visual colonization. And so um, for me, it was a, a wonderful experiment in, in doing a kind of microhistory autobiography that had me at first, it felt like ventriloquizing. You know, I kind of felt like, you know, the, the part of the uh, art historian will be played today <laughs> by Charlotte Eubanks, you know. Um, but then to kind of get into this compelling life story and to also experiment with allowing the artist and her voice to have primacy. So in that, in that piece, I do a lot of quoting from her diaries, from her journals, um, from kind of uh, archival materials um, that I was able to discover at the museum. And that felt like a very different kind of work for me. And having the portfolio feature as a place, as kind of outlet to put that, um, let me do a new kind of intellectual work. And tell a story of this woman who I just think is really, I mean, she's like the Forrest Gump of <laughs> 20th century colonial Japan. I mean, she's a nanny in, in Moscow when the Marco Polo bridge incident, you know, like comes across and she overhears it at the opera. And I mean, it's just all this kind of um, crazy stuff. She's also a part of the international military tribunal for the far East reporting for a socialist newspaper and stuff. So that's kind of more what I'll, the story of her that I'll tell in the book, but in many ways, I feel like the book that I'm working on now was enabled by what the portfolio feature made possible or allowed me to start to think. And one of the things that I would add to, to it is, is, um, you know, uh, as, as a, a, a reader and uh, early editor uh, of, of it, uh, her, uh, of Charlotte's pieces is, is just the, the sort of um, linking of these images with the, the text is something that I think the portfolio section as a whole does really well. And the, the, the I have to commend University of Minnesota Press, the reproductions that they're able to, to do uh, in the journal look fantastic. Yeah, Minnesota's done a great job with the images. So there's a sort of physical presence that I think that the portfolio, it's, it's something to behold. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Um, no, it's, it's, it's fabulous. Um, and also, just in case listeners didn't catch this detail, she wanted to sell her pieces to buy an island, folks. Yeah, that's <laughs> you need to read this section, you need to look at these images, and you need to just love this person, um, just because you know, I do. Okay, so John, you also have a co-authored um, special section in the field trip rubric of this convergent section. Now this, um, again, in the words of the journal, and just to echo something that Tina's talked about a little bit earlier, this is a place to experiment with short reports on the state of a field or a subfield, and it can take many different forms. So, John, with Christopher Reed, you published um, a piece called The Utility of Aesthetics, Exhibition, Pedagogy, and Critical Questions for Postcolonialism. And this focuses on um, your experience collaborating on a course that created an exhibition called Forging Alliances. So I'll ask you the same question for you. Um, what do you find to be perhaps most exciting about this piece as it instantiates and embodies this field trip section? And, and what would you most like us to understand about what you think is most important about what's going on here? 
Well, one of the things that happens a lot in academia is, you know, we go to a conference or we go to a workshop and we say, hey, that was really neat. And then we go home and, you know, maybe it lingers on in our minds a little bit and maybe it transforms the way we think about it. But we often don't write about those experiences. And um, a a field trip is uh, the idea of the field trip, I think, originally set out was was a way to document that, a way to to to. to, you know, get credit for that, right? As publication, we're talking about valuation before, right? Um, this idea of, uh, of being able to uh, explain the intellectual problem of, of teaching a course um, and, and, and have that mean something. And, and hopefully it's valuable to other people. And, that, and that's what this was. This was a collaborative course that I taught uh, a few years ago. And um, it was an exciting course for me because uh, again it was this this kind of uh, a process that I think Charlotte is, was uh, describing very well as the sort of the the plus n or uh, what was your term for it I forget once over once over right <laughs> so so doing something else I'm teaching with a uh, uh, art historian a visual culture person Christopher Reed um, for the first time and uh, I've done a lot of teaching uh, uh, about uh, art and film before but to actually teach with somebody who's trained in that discipline gives you a different perspective um, and we were able to, to I think, bring um, different things to the table that really made for an exciting classroom experience, at least for the two of us, if not for our <laughs> students. Um, and, uh, and, and it culminated in the students curating this exhibition at uh, the, the Penn State University um, uh, Art Museum. Um, and it's, it's you know, something that I think normally one would do and it would be done. And, and you'd sort of say, hey, that was a lot of fun. Uh, but this really gave us the forum to to talk about it and think more about it and, and explain what we sort of learned in the, in the process and do it collaboratively. Again, like you said, uh, Carla, earlier, um, this idea of, uh, of uh, collaborative writing is something that, that we probably uh, need to do more of but often don't have a chance to. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's why it was very exciting for me to, to take it on. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, um, or at least a couple of the things I really love about this field trip section and about this piece in particular is not only does it really celebrate this local collection, right? I mean, you take us into this particular place and particular space and ground it and just open up these possibilities for thinking with um, this particular collection, but also it helps us think about and transform, um, just to kind of echo a little bit of what you just said, a process into a kind of object, right? Into a moving object, but it makes the process into a thing, right? That we can value and that we can share and experience. And often it's that aspect of process of conferences and workings together and and putting together a course and curating an exhibition that gets left out of the um, the kind of residue of what remains in the publications or the the objects that come out of this, right? So I I really love that part of it. And I think the same can be said for the interface section. Um, The concept of the interface section uh, if I can move on to that, uh, it, uh, so far as I understand, uh, was to really offer kind of the work that's being done digitally uh, a place in print. Uh, again, you know, a lot of people are working in in the realm of the digital now, and a lot of that work it doesn't have a, a, a doesn't register in the strange uh, valuation structures of the contemporary university, and so. Uh, having people reporting on various uh, uh, projects, um, I think uh, here in print, you know, even if it's just this kind of slight 
you know, experimental format, which, which is quite short, um, I, I think uh, is providing a kind of a way of bridging that gap. Great. So there's, um, there's not only an interface section, and we won't have time to talk in detail about this, but I'll just um, mention for listeners so that when they get their copies of the journal, um, they can look at this. This interface section um, is uh, re or there's an introduction to it called re slash collecting by Adeline Co. And it, it um, includes three pieces on digital collections and digital humanities projects, one on um, 311 by Eric Dinmore, one called the re slash collecting project and rethinking archives and archival practice by Grace Yeah, and then a digitize, digitizing Chinese Englishman creating a 19th century post-colonial archive by Adeline Ko. Now, in addition to this, there's also another section, again, we won't have a chance to talk about in any detail, um, and I think Johnny Verdi alluded to it before, but I'll just mention, this is the A&Q section. And just to, again, um, kind of echo Tina's description before, this is in the words of the journal, this is a feature designed to engage intellectuals in institutional settings other than the professoriate to highlight the work of one or more emerging scholars or to engage established scholars on topics that range widely beyond their work to cover developments in their field in the discipline and beyond. And there's this great piece, um, which is an interview that focuses on Mughal collections. Um, so listeners definitely check that out as well. Okay, so as we come to, um, unfortunately, I'm actually really sad to bring this to a conclusion because it's so much fun to talk about with you guys. Um, but as we come to our conclusion, um, we'll, we'll talk about the uh, potential futures of the journal in a moment. But in the meantime, is there anything about um, this particular issue or the kind of overview and goals of the journal so far that we didn't have a chance to mention um, or to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Perhaps Charlotte, um, is there anything that you'd like to put on the table that, that hasn't come up already? Yeah, I think one, one thing in particular, and that is to maybe just spend a moment thinking about the essays. So for the essays, I mean, um, you know, we, we try to publish you know, four to six essays per, per issue here. And we're, you know, in addition to kind of the, the regular standard, you know, whatever, 8,000, 8 to 10,000 word uh, academic essay, we're also interested in some flexibility there as well. So one of the essays in our particular um, Collecting Asia's issue is by Andrew Leon called The Pocket and the Watch, a collective individualist reading of Japanese-American literature. He was at the symposium, and it became clear even at the symposium that the the – uh, ambition of his presentation was large <laughs> and that it was going to necessitate uh, a larger and lengthier essay than normal. And so we worked with him on what that might look like and allowed him to, you know, gave him the space to publish what is it? 12,000 words. It was a long one. <laughs> it's 40, some, 40 something pages, 40 something yeah, pages yeah. thing. And then, uh, conversely, we had a, another person who was also at the symposium, uh, John Whittier Tree, who ended up publishing his intervention uh, at the symposium as Orientalia of Bibliophilia Fetish, a play in three acts, where he intercalates uh, an academic essay, which is a sort of intellectual meditation on the erotics of collection and on the homoerotics, often hidden homoerotics um, that, that have undergirded um, many of the North American uh, library collections of Asian volumes. But he intercalates that with three imaginative pieces that are plays where he 
sort of fills in those gaps in history that are not accessible to us anymore. Um, and, you know, he was, he was concerned about how this would work and we encouraged him to take it on. And in some ways that essay for me is, is almost a convergence piece while also being an essay. And that was really exciting to work with him on. John, did you want to um, add anything um, that we haven't talked about, but just to kind of put on the table for listeners? Uh, just to say, yeah, the experiments continue into the essay section and that, uh, so the, you know, on one hand, it's a traditional, uh, more traditional section, but uh, we are, because it's a new journal, because we're open to this kind of formal um, uh, differences, um, I, that it's, it's, it continues to be uh, an area uh, that we'll encourage people to, to, you know, push their own limits on. Yeah, and the A&Q feature in Convergences was nicely echoed, I thought, in the other three articles, the one by um, Jennifer Wei, which is on uh, Vietnamese handicraft and the way it was curated, the Smithsonian, uh, Regini Taro Srinivasan's, uh, also focused on the Smithsonian and, and the displays of um, Indian Americans in the era of New India, and then Akiko Takenaka's meditation on uh Atomic Excess and Peace Museums in Contemporary Japan. So kind of trying to keep those, those things com- in conversation with one another was fun. Great. Now, as we kind of come um, to the end of this, let's talk about where the journal might go in the future. Um, kind of what are your collective plans for future, possible futures of the journal or actual futures of the journal? And are there any kind of features or components that you'd like to experiment even further with? And Tina, perhaps we can start with you. Yeah. Um, well, as uh, as you know, journal production, the timelines are long and never ending. So we actually have all of the issues for 2016 already done and uh, at the press. So we've got an issue on urbanisms and urbanization that is about to be published this week. Um, we've got an issue on Asian empires and imperialisms that will be coming out in the fall. And then we have issues on frontiers, indigeneity, forgetting wars and critical refugee studies that are already in the works. So, um, you know, we're, we're now, we now have the luxury of working with a longer lead time for the journal. And that's allowed us to really spend some time um, thinking about these rubrics for special issues that would that are broad enough to sort of bring a lot of different kinds of work into conversation, but also focused enough so that we can make critical interventions, which is really our goal. Um, so there's that. And then um, I should mention, too, that the journal works in tandem with a number of other Asian studies department projects. And our goal has always been to sort of create synergy between those things. So um, we launched last we, we launched last year at the Global Asia's Three conference um, that we hosted in March, April 2015. And then we will be uh, in March 2017 having the Global Asia's Four conference. So that's uh, um, a great opportunity for us both to sort of showcase some of the stuff that we're doing in the journal, but also to develop more uh, work and opportunities that will then appear in future issues of the journal as well. Awesome. Thank you. Charlotte, was there anything you wanted to add? Well, you know, I think for me, having done the collecting issue with with John and with Tina was so rewarding Mm -hmm. that I went right back in. I I think the day after we delivered the content and I was like, I want to do it. It was awesome. (laughs) Totally unexpected, but very awesome. So, um, and, um, 
so I, I sought out a colleague in cultural anthropology to work on the indigeneity issue. And um, that's been a lot of fun just um, to, to think through, you know, what it would take to bring, uh, you know, literature and, and art history and anthropology and geography into conversation with one another um, on, on that issue. So that's been a lot of fun. And I do it again, somewhat crazily. I'll probably keep <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I find myself too more and more sending out emails that look like, Hey, I think you're awesome. Let's do something together. I don't know what that'll be, but let's just like figure it out and it'll be cool. Um, And I think more and more like exciting work is coming out of those kinds of just collaborative um, comings together. Right. John, what about you? Like what um, for you, is there anything that you um, would like to add to this conversation about um, possible futures for the journal that you'd like to see? Uh, I'm uh, also very excited about the future of, of uh, the journal. I don't have a, 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 a special issue coming out anytime soon, but uh, I think now we're booked to like 2020 or something wow. in, in terms of uh, stacked up with with, uh, with journals. But uh, I continue to be uh, part of the, the collective and, and excited about uh, the work that the journal is going to be doing going forward. And I hope other people in the field, uh, you know, besides you, Carla, because we know you're interested <laughs> are, are, are interested as well in, in uh, contributing. Great. Well, actually, John will be doing something at the, he and I are going to be co-hosting the, with Neiko Tachibana Association for Japanese yeah, Literary Studies. So some, something, some sort of convert, uh, convergence feature will come out of that because we're trying to, for the first time to have a Japanese American set of panels at this Japanese Literary Association. So that'll be very cool. Well, thank you so much. Best of luck with that. And thanks um, to the three of you for making time to talk with me today. It's really been great. And congratulations on, on an amazing and really exciting journal. Thanks, thanks so much. <laughs> thanks, listeners. <laughs> You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us. And we will see you next time.